Okay, we are live on Starfleet Boy episode two. Uh, today we're going to have uh, an informal and casual discussion about uh, episode two of Star Trek The Next Generation known as The Naked Now. And I'll be joined by my esteemed colleague uh, sitting over there on the Cardassian side of space, Gull Du Scott. Hello, Hello SB. Uh, Gull Du Scott here, live from Tarak Noor. <laughs> Excellent. I uh, just want to say that we attempted communications earlier in the day, but there was some kind of um, technical difficulty, I believe, on the Terok Nor side, but, you know, obviously I'm not, you know, I'm open to it being on, on our side here in the, in, in the Federation, but... I, I agree don't... with you. I think there may have been some paw wraiths that uh, were interfering with my transmission. <laughs> Either way, we're back now, and every all systems seem to be working uh, well. Uh, we have a really strong subspace communication link, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna start our discussion. Um, before that, I've prepared a little statement, Goldie Scott. Uh, yes. Uh, because this episode, this particular episode, the Naked Now, is extremely sexy. Um, the first time I saw it was with my parents when I was nine years old. I think that's around the age nine or ten. Um, I think it aired in 87 or 88, 87, right? That's when Next Gen. Uh, October uh, 5th, 1987 is when this particular episode aired. I love you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for knowing that. <laughs> Anyways, what I do remember myself personally is that it was very awkward watching with my mom and dad that first time. I, you know, I don't think I watched with my mom and dad. This was, uh, I watched a lot of shows by myself. I was... I was nine at the time, and uh, I have very clear memories of one specific scene in this show. Do you want I'm to sure talk about that now? Or do you yeah, want we'll to get to that later. Okay, well, the, you're going to remember that. But uh, yeah. the disclaimer I have is if you're a young person and you're watching this, and what I mean by young is, I guess, under the age of 13, 14, right? Yeah, it's a PG-13 show, I would say. PG-13 show. Uh, we're going to be talking, frankly, about um, some of the sexual aspects. So if you get embarrassed by sex, please tune out right now. Close your browser. This is, uh, is going to be tame by societal standards, but, you know, we just want to put that disclaimer out there. I mean, there's videos of twerking on YouTube, right? There's videos of much worse than whatever <laughs> two, guy, two nerds talking about Star Trek is, is about to be like. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, so on that, so now that we got the my my little friendly neighborhood disclaimer out of the way, um, we are in. We have decided together in celebration of this episode, uh, since the main theme <clears throat> involves the crew, uh, the main plot story device involves the crew becoming intoxicated by a virus, we ourselves are going to be intoxicated slightly, maybe. <laughs> yes. By un we are not naming the brands because nobody has paid us to name their brand of alcohol, but I'm drinking a beer beverage and you're drinking uh, what? A wine a wine beverage. So cheers. cheers. Cheers to you and the union, hopeful future union between the Cardassian Empire and the United Federation of Planets. We'll see what happens. All right. <clears throat> so, uh, one quick thing before you jump into your, your episode summary, I do want to point out, although this is, uh, a lot of people consider this episode two, technically this is considered episode three. 
Encounter at Farpoint is considered episodes one and two. Thank you for clarifying that, and that is important. Yeah, because we may get angry comments from people if we refer to it as episode two, so I just want to sort of preemptively, you know, let those people know that we are as knowledgeable in this as you. You don't need to attack us. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say, if you want to attack us, feel free. We're ready for that, too. <clears throat> Here's. Because I know, uh, Scott, that I'm going, so, oh, that reminds me. Thank you, Scott. Yes. Uh, last episode, there were a few things that came to my attention that may have been um, incorrect. One is, I, on Netflix, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation is remastered, after all. Um, so I think they did a really good job because um, when I was watching it, it, to describe how I'm viewing it, I probably haven't seen many of these episodes since I was a teenager. And I'm 38 now. So in like my teenage, you know, in memory, we all know now how imperfect memory actually is. The effects were great at the time. So when I was watching it, I was like, these are the same effects. But upon closer examination, when I watched this episode, I did now see that there are things that are clearer, sharper, and even uh, like planets, the clouds are moving a little differently and, and the rendering is just like a little bit better. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they used actual models for the remaster. Is that right, Scott? Do you know? Um, I don't know if they used actual models or if they, I really don't know the, the remastering process, um, if, but I do know that it looks incredible. And my favorite part is during the opening credits when, uh, right after it says, you know, Will Wheaton as Wesley Crusher, you see this shot of the Enterprise coming in and in the little window, um, I think that's 10 forward, you can actually see people in walking around and, you know, it's that detailed. Wow, it, it wouldn't be 10 forward if it's the back shot, but it's probably some observation deck or something. Like That's the top awesome. of the saucer section, but looking backwards. I watch on a little iPad. I have to upgrade my viewing experience. Oh, if yes, definitely, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I viewed this on a 46-inch uh, flat screen uh, television in high-definition technology. Oh, it sounds like Cardassian way better than uh, Earth here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. Karak Noor anyways. Um, no. So um, that was one thing. Um, so Netflix is offering a, a better experience, guys. And also the other thing um, was um, I did say something like Deneb 2, and I believe the name of the planet, as I, it was pointed out, was is actually Deneb 4. Uh-oh. So... <laughs> I just want you to know that like I'll never get those details right. That's what I rely on everyone out there and especially my colleagues, my much more knowledgeable and generous colleagues such as Galdu Scott and the doctor now as well. <laughs> I would not have known that either. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so going back to uh, The Naked Now, episode three actually, but the second story um, of the new series, uh, we start out with a distress call from a ship uh, called the Tsiolkovsky, a really nice little ship when they reveal it, because uh, for Star Trek fans, we know it as also the USS Grissom uh, from Star Trek Three, and uh, I know that the class is the O'Berth class, which I always thought was interesting. Um, a little tidbit of uh, trivia, um, I don't know, uh, 
much about him except that um, a quick glance at uh, Siakovsky, um, the name of the ship is, uh, he was a Russian scientist who was uh, instrumental in uh, rocketry and uh, the space program and, you know, just rocketry in general and is considered one of like four or five uh, really influential individuals around the Earth from all nations uh, who helped uh, the space program basically be what it is today uh, in general. Whether you think of the United States space program or the Russian space program or hopefully eventually a world space program kind of like in Star Trek, <laughs> uh, this person will go down in history. And I think it's cool that Star Trek honored him by naming a ship after him. And it's even cooler that normally um, the ships are designated USS, but the Siakovsky is called the SS Siakovsky, which is more uh, a designation that you would find uh, in, in Russia. And uh, this was made when the Cold War was still going on. So Yeah, interesting point as well. The Cold War was still going on at the time of Siakovsky. So to the Siakovsky. I like that we're going to drink... Uh, <laughs> 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 and cheers at things. It's pretty awesome. Um, so they discover, so they find this, you know, they answer this distress uh, signal. And um, they come upon this ship, and the ship was a research vessel that was studying um, a star that is going to go Nova. This is the kind of stuff we do in, in Star Trek and Starfleet. It's like, you know, they're, they're, it's not just, uh, it's not just like, you know, cowboys in space um, and shoot 'em ups There's a lot of like scientific discovery going on, much like real life, you know. I mean, there's uh, scientists that are like constantly going to interesting and dangerous places sometimes. Um, anyhow, they, they get a distress signal and when they arrive, they see the ship is kind of just, you know, derelict. And they get a strange, uh, that when they tr attempt to communicate with the ship, they get a strange response. And then all of a sudden you hear uh, a dramatic sound like an explosion. And sure enough, um, the crew has now somehow uh, released a, uh, a hatch into outer space. And, uh, and everyone who was left on board uh, alive has now been sucked out into the vacuum of space. Very Actually been blown out. Blown, right. Well... Uh, so yep. I would love to uh, redo that discussion that we had earlier. So apparently there's some innuendo. So like we said, this is a very sexy episode of Star Trek. Very sexy. Very sexy. And it starts out, uh, so in a scene that, that comes up, uh, the after the blowout, <laughs> the, the crew decide to go and investigate on the ship, and um, they find that uh, there's a, a crazy rager or kegger that's been going on there's like uh, uh empty glasses of alcohol on the floor party favors you know god knows what there's naked frozen people yeah. like in Orgy. there's naked frozen people apparently uh whatever was happening to the crew one of the 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 one of the uh, indicators that something was wrong is that everyone became extremely hot and had to undress and like uh the, they find out that the um and they're and they're all in, uninhibited and having you know it, it seems like they're having orgies and and drinking and it's like a bacchanalia basically on the ship is what the evidence shows and um, so then for those of you who have watched for for those of us who watched the original series episode the naked time which this episode is a is a 
homage and sequel to. Um, not a reboot, though. Not a reboot, but an, an homage and a sequel. <laughs> um, for those of us who know that, uh, this episode's really interesting because we understand certain plot devices. For example, when uh, when the we know that it's a contagion, first of all, like some kind of virus, and interestingly enough, it's passed through a sound. <laughs> or at least there's always a sound, including sound in the effect. episode, a sound that, a chime sound. <laughs> so if you touch an infected person, you, in, in actual real life, if you ever got this thing, you might hear a chime <laughs> out of nowhere. You'll be like, oh. Well, anytime you hear a chime, you may want to go to a doctor. To a doctor right away. <laughs> Anyways, your doctor. The contagion that um, it just causes you to get more and more intoxicated, or it, rather, the symptoms are the same as getting really wasted. And if you've ever been drunk or have gotten really wasted, you know that like you pretty much are kind of in and out of uh, control of yourself. Uh, your consciousness kind of like goes to these like far out places, and in the meantime, you're on top of bar stools dancing or making out with total strangers or, you know, doing, I don't know, all kinds of things. Or recording a show on YouTube. <laughs> right, exactly. So <laughs> there's that. Um, anyway, so this, this disease now is brought aboard the Enterprise and it starts infecting people. And I think the first person to be infected was Jordy. Yes, he caught the falling uh, woman, all the, the white stuff hit, uh, got on him, and that's how he got infected. And we heard that chime when he, when he got infected, so that's how we knew. Yeah, and I feel like this is a very Geordie-centric episode. We really get the most, the most story is sort of devoted to him and his longing to, to see like everyone else does. And I feel like if there's one central character, he, he's the one. I, I agree with that. It's, uh, it's a nice... A nice highlight on on his character, uh, and and I you know funny enough he so he's the first one to show symptoms and he's walking around and you know infecting people left and right and we hear this chime you know going off every time it happens and uh, and so you know it kind of interesting way to illustrate how viruses or contagions or whatever can spread you know very good very good uh, way of showing it on screen. Um, so, so this this disease is now brought aboard the Enterprise, and then we start having a few interesting complications. At first, it's very harmless and and humorous. I think uh, some of the funniest things are Tasha. It's two o'clock. Tasha. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> what was that? It's the ship's computer. It says it gives me the time. It says it's. Two uh, so it's two o'clock at Starfleet headquarters, everyone. Yeah, I don't know how to control that, but I have to figure out how to shut that off. I thought Do Not Disturb would. It's do. five o'clock on Terraknor. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> and now we have to drink. Cheers. <laughs> so, um, I think Tasha is the next person to become infected. Yeah, well, Jordy tries to seduce her and he's touching that's, her face. That's right. And uh, she, you know, denies his, his advances. Um, but that is how she becomes infected. He gets infected as well. And then, uh, so anyways, you know, as, as more and more people get infected, it actually, there's a lot of humor in this episode. Um, Tasha becomes kind of like a minx, basically. I mean, she's, her sex drive goes into overload and, uh, and she's, 
you know, just ready for, for that. Um, but <laughs> another, yeah, another interesting thing happens, a uh, young Wesley Crusher becomes infected. And I thought at the time when I first saw this, I was like, kind of, I, I remember being really like, just annoyed that, that like they, that Wesley was, was infected and stuff like that. And I remember seeing it again as a teenager and I, I really wasn't fond of, um, the character's arrogance, I guess, you know? Were you a Wesley hater? I, I was in the beginning. I actually quickly shed that, that, that hatred. Like I think by mid season, um, I was on the Wesley camp again, <laughs> but I remember being really annoyed when I saw it this time. I actually was endeared. Um, I thought it was endearing. I, I like any any good Wesley episode is <laughs> at the top of my list, and that sweater, the sweater he's wearing, and this is fantastic. That's that's on my notes. I had made a note about Wesley's sweater here. We'll get back to that later. Awesome. There's a lot of Wesley sweater conversations we can we can have uh, as we go through the seasons, but um, but I also thought uh, some interesting things were like um, I didn't expect Data to become infected and he seems to get infected as well but he does describe some of his anatomy which is inter interesting he in one scene where he's he's trying to justify i think picard questions like why are you infected because you're an android right and he's like well i have a nutrient rich fluid that runs through my body and it kind of makes sense. it's interesting it's like of course he is like oil you know or, or some kind of lubricant i don't know i'm not sure i bought that because it you know Maybe it makes sense right now in the timeline of the show, you know, just coming out. But uh, in later years, we see the insides of Data, and it's very much mechanical. And I don't know that I buy that, a bi you know, something that affects biological entities is, would affect him in the same way. I think, I think that, like, I think that I, for this, um, this, this show actually doesn't, um, go too far. It could have gone in that direction, I think, later, um, where they, you know, they reveal that he has biological components. But I kind of like that he views himself. He, I don't think these are biological components. I think there's fluid that needs to flow through to, like, lubricate, you know, uh, servos and things like that. And while it's a contained system, and we don't see, like, fluid fl popping out of him when, when they, you know, remove his arm or he gets injured, uh, it's possible that, that it does exist. And in this moment, he's justifying his, his, uh, his similarity to humanity by saying, well, I can get infected by this thing too. Um, but I will agree with you that like he should, by all intents and purposes, he shouldn't be infected. I mean, a, a virus in his system, there should be like nano robots that go in and just zap the shit out of it. Like with phaser. Yeah, you're absolutely right, but but I see how data could try to you know, may, and maybe data doesn't realize it, but he might have a subroutine or an algorithm that forces him to like have a contact high. Doctor Sue, I, I, I go with it. I mean, it's a very short part of the episode. It's pretty yeah. much the last but, like five minutes, but uh, but regardless, they do inoculate him, and he seems to get better. <laughs> the <Yeah. end>. so, <laughs> so so there's a weird. Thing going on there but like that is an interesting incongruity or anomaly or just something something to to talk about further in another discussion but yeah he seems to be affected by this thing too so this contagion um doesn't just work on human physiology 
but apparently it can work on androids and any other uh, beings. Which, um, a little side uh, question for you. Do you notice that there's really, like, other than Worf, there's, like, a lack of aliens on Star Trek The Next Generation? Yeah, well, especially in the early part. Like, I noticed, I watched Encounter Farpoint also recently, and there is, like, one shot, I think, of a a female Vulcan that you see. Uh, And maybe one other, one or two other aliens in one of, like, the crowd shots. Uh, But, yeah, they, they, it's a very human crew, and they tell us, you know, uh, Troy is beta betazoid or half betazoid, but she looks the same as us. So same as us. There are a lot of humanoids in um, in our galaxy, apparently, and they do explain this in an interesting way. Uh, later on, there's an episode that that uh, shows like that. There's a common ancestor for all uh, of the major life forms in our galaxy. Do you remember that episode with the fountain? Uh, in Sorry, it was, was it a TNG episode? Yeah, it's a TNG episode. I think it's season six or seven. It gets it's really trippy. Um, I'll try to remember the name of the episode, but it has to do with uh, later on they nurture uh, Picard's archaeological past, his interest in archaeology, and you know. Uh, oh, I do remember that, and that's around the Darmok episode, right? Or around that time, exactly. And so, so. You know, that might be one explanation, but I will say one thing, just I understand that technologically it may have been difficult to create a lot of different, um, you know, at the time, as far as the production went, even though it was a million an episode or something like that, um, I do get that it's probably hard to, like, create interesting aliens for every, you know, in the crew for every episode. So, you know, that's something that... Hopefully now with CG and kind of like some of the advancements, the new Star Trek show that comes out in 2017 will feature a few more uh, interesting aliens on board the ship. But they did have have, um, access to all the, the, you know, movie props and everything. And I think, as you mentioned, the the Solkovsky was used as another ship in Star Trek three. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the sets and things were the same. So you would think they could use the masks or the costumes for, you know, all the aliens and, and whatnot in, uh, from the movies. But even still, the films don't even have a, lot, a variety like, of... Right, movies. they really are just Klingons and Spock. Romulans. And then there's a the one scene in Star Trek Three that has an, an alien, but he's still very humanoid. He has a very human face, even though he has, like, three lips and, like, you know... Uh, something that looks like whiskers coming out of his ears. Oh, yeah, the cantina bar scene. Yeah, yeah, where he's like, uh, Genesis allowed is not his planet planet forbidden. Um, (laughs) But, but yeah, I, I feel the first time I felt like Star Trek actually delivered on what you see in comics... And in the cartoon series, you do see a lot of interesting aliens in the cartoon series. So the first time I think Star Trek actually delivers on that is not until J.J. Abrams. You do see some wild-looking aliens serving on board Enterprise ship, you know, uh, sorry, Starfleet ships in the first uh, in the Star Trek uh, alternate universe movie. I agree with that. So I hope, yeah, and I think that's a direct result of technology access like how technology is kind of advanced and makes it easier because star trek's not 
a high budget production by some show standards like game of thrones let's use that as an example right you have fucking dragons and ice warriors and like you know white walkers white walkers yeah and and like you know all kinds of interesting but it's a well, lot. Also, yeah, I don't know if you talked about this last time that about TNG being the first uh, show made specifically for syndication. That you know, they it wasn't even on a major network. This was at a time when you basically had CBS, NBC, and ABC. Fox, I don't think, was even around yet, or they were just about to come on the scene. And um, you know, this was on like the UHF channels. If you're old enough to remember what those were, and. Mm-hmm it was not a given that anyone was ever going to watch this. So it was made on a very kind of low budget, um, just seat of their pants, not really sure if this was going to last more than one year. And I think it's amazing that they pulled it off because it, it's a great show. So where they win, of course, is the writing. Um, there's really good good stories that are told throughout the, the, the show's history. Um, Especially so- Deep Space Nine as well. Yeah. You- Star Trek, Star Trek forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we go into the you know an interesting set of uh, circumstances where the show spends a good quality amount of time um, revealing interesting things. So that's something that I think that was very clever about making this the second story um, is that by by making the crew infected wet by this contagion that. Uh, creates uh, symptoms. The symptoms are that you are intoxicated and lose your inhibitions. It gives us all a real, uh, as the audience, it gives us a great view into the the inner psyche of each of our characters. Uh, we discover a lot about every character, except Worf, who stays immune to the condition throughout the whole episode. But we definitely get a lot of Worf development later on. But but here we find out a lot about Tasha. Uh, we, uh, we, it's, you know, the doctor at one point gets infected because Riker infects her and Troy got infected and she went straight to Riker to have sex. She's like, kind of like, you know, it's, it's a very touching scene actually because she comes to him and she's uh, again, overwhelmed by the emotions on the ship. She's like, everyone's just like coming out and letting go and like going crazy and I'm feeling it, man. I'm in, I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love I love when Troy is just like in full empath mode. Yeah, so she's like yeah. She's like, I I think it's wonderful. I I have since met some. Uh, Are we gonna talk about her hair at all in this episode? <laughs> I wish there was a way to show a picture <laughs> of these things. We'll figure it out uh, as yeah. as you need to get some show. I don't know special effects software or whatever the kids use to do that these days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, her hair's out of control. Her whole outfit. Which there's no way she could have done that herself. So the only conclusion you can draw is that there is some sort of hair salon on the Enterprise. There is. Mr. Mott. Do you remember? Do you not remember? Did you, you actually know this? This is a real thing? Yeah, this is a real thing. So later in later seasons, I think I'm gonna guess season six is when you finally meet the hairdresser. There's a there's a hair I salon. I don't remember that at all. There's probably a reason I don't remember that. And I think his name is Mr. Mott. And he's, <laughs> I can't, he's definitely an alien. Good and memory. What's that? Good memory on that. Oh, yeah, the weird things I remember, <laughs> like Mr. Mott, you know. But let me see if I can find him online. This is worth a, 
uh, a check here. Mr. Mott. Oh, there he is. So he, <laughs> oh, and I guess that must be the real actor. <laughs> so here we go. Memory Alpha is a great resource, by the way. Have you ever gone to Memory Alpha? Uh, hold on. Are they paying us to say this? Oh, sorry. No, it's a wikia. I think yeah. it's a not for profit. It's fine. Let's wait until somebody pays us. But yes, I do use, uh, <laughs> I use Memory Alpha quite frequently. I am a fan. Yeah, so Memory Alpha has a lot of great information about Star Trek. I'm, I, I'm, I'm gonna say uh, they're a they're a a resource that we're happy to talk about openly. <laughs> and I also encourage them to to pay us someday. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're awesome. <laughs> so yeah, he's the uh, he's the uh, barber on the Enterprise, and he's uh, in an interesting plot device where Data needs a hairpiece. I think it was for. A, it was like a Romulan, the Romulan, the unification episode. It probably is where he was introduced. So he's never met Picard. <laughs> yeah, I was I always wondered how Picard keeps his hair so perfect, perfectly trim. I assume that was one of Riker's duties. <laughs> Riker, <laughs> number one. Number bring one. The it's time for my weekly haircut. Riker would do that. He would definitely do that. So Troy uh, has an interesting uh, line. What does she say to, uh, to Commander Riker? It's something about, don't you want my mind to be in you or something? Like, it's like... Yeah, it's very provocative. Yeah, it's very provocative and very interesting. Like, it gives you a hint of, that, like, uh, Beta Z... And Beta's, is it Beta Z or Beta Zoan? I, I switch back and forth and don't worry about it. All right, thanks. So Beta Z uh, intimacy is on a whole different level <laughs> than human intimacy because, uh, you know, they apparently they also enter each other's minds during sexual encounters. So very, very cool little side tidbit there. Um, appealing to me. What's that? It just doesn't sound appealing to me. Really? You don't want Counselor Troy to like, rock, your, rock your psyche and your body? I don't know. I don't know that I want to know what what is going on in Counselor Troy's head. Good point, but <laughs> I think she's a good girl. She's a do you, yeah. Like what's she's in there? A girl who wants to be bad. She wants to be bad, but she's a good yeah. girl. A nice, nice, nice. Everyone on Star Trek's a good person, except you know maybe Goldie Scott. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, even Gold is... See, that's a, I think that's an, uh, the... Over I'm even redeemed by the end. By season seven, you know, you were kind of with me. Season yeah. Seven, not, <laughs> excuse me, not DS9, Tarak Nor. <laughs> One of the best things about Star Trek is that it does really explore uh, characters uh, that you would normally, on face value, think of as bad or evil. Um, and we see that a lot throughout Star Trek. But in this episode, we're just in the, in the heads of our, our crew. And... Um, so everything's still okay. In fact, at, at one point, the card's even like a little concerned and he, and he asks, um, well, if the sun were to supernova, you know, what's the danger to us? And, and very confidently, this chief engineer who we, I don't think we see her again because. Oh yes, yeah, McDougal. McDougal, yeah, she's just a one. Do we see her again? I don't remember. One and done. I, I made a note of that and did some research. Sarah, she, she is the chief engineer in this episode only. We never see her again. Oh, interesting. So 
and and I think I guess Jordy doesn't become chief engineer until season two. Is that right? I think it's the end of season one. Okay. If I remember correctly, and that's around the same time. I think he's in the yellow uniform before the end of season one, also. All right. Well, very good. But yeah, so Jordy, interestingly enough, Jordy's a bridge crew member. He is a helmsman in uh, in the beginning. Um, and Warp is still in his red uniform as well. He hasn't changed to yellow yet either. Right. Exactly. His command. Uh, hit, and and Warp seems to be. What is his role exactly? Sometimes he's at the helm. Sometimes he's at, he's at the tactical station. Sometimes he's at the science station. I guess they like in the beginning. He, just kind of like a flex. His role is to be in the shot. <laughs> just be in the shot. Like, let's just, we just want your forehead in the shot. Remind people that this is like an outer space show. Right. So it's still unclear as to what Jordy's and Worf's role are, but we do know that they are characters that they're keepers. But unfortunately, the chief engineer is not. And probably because of this incident, I would imagine Picard runs a tough ship and he's like, you're incompetent. I'm sorry. I mean, she let a... How old is Wesley in this? 15? Yeah. So what happened, well, let's talk about what happened real quick before we get into, into her. But she confidently says, no problem, Captain Picard. If the sun supernovas, we can zap out of here in no time, right? Isn't that what happens? Like, just It was just that simple, Chief McDougal. <laughs> but little did she know that young Wesley would become intoxicated by the disease as well. And he, um, <clears throat> he decides that he, oh, interesting. Also, uh, the, the episode starts with Wesley playing with a miniature version of <laughs> a tractor. <laughs> <I love> this. <laughs> he fantasizes that of the captain giving him orders. That's his, that's how he plays with himself. I am imagining <laughs> the captain giving him orders. But how, Mr. Crusher. Do we know how old Wesley is at this point? I believe it's 14 or 15. Okay, that makes a little more sense. Yeah. <laughs> so he um, he has this, he has these like fantasies of the Captain Game Orders, and he creates a track a little miniature tractor beam. And when he becomes intoxicated, he suddenly decides, oh, you know what? It's gonna be, the best thing to do is to go into engineering and take over the fucking ship. I have a few qualms with this. The fact that it's so easy to take over the ship is a little disturbing. Well, okay. Are we are we supposed to believe that, or are we supposed to believe that Wesley is like a super genius? I don't mind the super genius part um, because I think that that's okay. I mean, like we there's always like there are people like him. Uh, and most times they make a lot of mistakes. And I think Wesley does make a lot of mistakes. So I think that's okay. I do think it's weird that um, there is a scene later on. Uh, so, you know, connecting this little plot point where he he has this, uh, this uh, miniature version of a uh, tractor beam that he also uses as a repulsor. He's configured it to be a repulsor. Well, later on, during the, the 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 most climactic and dramatic portion of the show, where this like asteroid is heading toward them, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, you- is it an asteroid, or was it a piece of a chunk of <laughs> of the sun that explodes? The sun will explode, by the way, guys. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert: the sun explodes. <laughs> the sun explodes. Uh, 
it, this chunk of solar matter is heading straight toward them. It looks like an asteroid. It's kind of like a rock, right? Which is kind of odd too, but I guess it super cools as it travels. So this like blob becomes more of a rock, right? Um, you know, they they need one more minute to, to like reconfigure the Enterprise because there's a disaster that we'll talk about that happens that causes the Enterprise to be a sitting duck. And somehow... Wesley is able to reroute the ship's power to turn the ship's tractor beam into a repulsor beam. And that I found a little unbelievable that no adult, the chief engineer was baffled and didn't know how to do that. And Wesley, you know, as smart as he is, he's 14 years old and, you know, this is an advanced starship. You're not just hiring a, you know, a, a freaking an engineer that's working on this starship. I would imagine this is the flagship of the Federation. I would imagine that the engineer is probably the best in her class. Whatever you want to say about her. I'm okay with Wesley planting the seed of the idea, but I think that the engineer should have been capable of rerouting the ship's you know, systems to, to do that. So I think if I were to revisit that episode and and like think of what, what would be more realistic, I would have Wesley still plant the seed of it, in, but I would have a collaboration between the chief engineer and Wesley to make it happen. So that would I agree. Be- it seems, yeah, it seems pretty silly that nobody in in history of Starfleet up to this point had figured out that you could reverse a tractor beam to make a <laughs> like that. Seems like one of the most basic things yeah. they would have realized right off the bat. Right, but again, we forgive the writers. We forgive you, writers. We love you because <laughs> overall, you got it right. I think you know the the main. I think the main point of this episode was to reveal something about these characters so that we, the audience, get a little more into them. It's like, so oh, do you feel like what they reveal in this episode really is true to all the characters, though. What we, you know, taking into account what we know about them down the line. I would say so because um, the Picard Crusher thing is an ongoing thing, you know, and so that that comes out into the open when uh, Dr. Crusher at one point tries to seduce Captain Picard and then when when everyone thinks they're going to die because the solar matter is like headed toward them, what does Picard do? He doesn't go into his ready room and have a cup of El Grey and listen to classical music. He goes down to medical to talk to Beverly. You know, so I thought that was interesting that, like, in faced with this moment where everyone might die, which, by the way, interestingly enough, everyone else is focused on, like, <laughs> a job to do <laughs> on the Enterprise. And, and in this moment, Captain Picard is like, I don't have anything to do. <laughs> I'm just going to go down. Picard <laughs> is really weird in this episode. I He's weird in general, like, the whole first season. Yeah, I don't... But I, particularly strange here where, uh, and again... What I like about this is that you don't know, you know, intoxication is a very interesting uh, thing because there is an element of unpredictability and surprise when one is intoxicated, like one is truly in some sense out of control. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. What, like, for example, Jim, the character of Jim, I don't remember his last name, but he's Uh, he's the guy who works in engineering who basically, when he gets drunk, apparently... He wants to, what, be Wesley's sidekick? Yeah, the really strange... Uh, that was weird. Actually. That was weird. I don't know. I didn't get what his motivation was. Uh, and he goes to, like, some kind of childlike state, you know? Yeah. He actually start. So 
here's why the enterprise is in trouble. This is a good time to to talk about this. So Wesley goes into engineering, as we had said, and he uh, begins to futz around and take uh, command of the ship. And he just like encourages the chief engineer to uh, to just kind of hang out and play. And then the chief, en- not sorry, sorry, the assistant chief engineer, whatever he is, Jim, right? Yeah. And he decides it'd be fun to take all the um, control chips out of the ship's computer, uh, you know, the engineering computer, and just start playing with them and tossing them in the air. Like, that's insane. This is another example of who are you letting onto your ship? <laughs> like, you know, like, who, what, are there psych exams that you have to pass to serve aboard? You know, like, shouldn't a, a psychiatrist have realized that Jim, you know, I guess this is the, uh... <laughs> why, why wasn't Jim in a, like a regular Starfleet uniform? Yeah, he's wearing some kind of jumpsuit. Well, was he some subcontractor or something? Or where did he come from? <laughs> there are a lot of mysteries as to the workings of the uh, Enterprise at this point. I think they didn't tighten that up until season three or season four. Uh, but I think uh, that goes back to Gene Roddenberry's ideas. Um, what he was trying to convey more were some of these like concepts and humanist things. And I do remember reading as a kid, uh, oftentimes the, um, the actors didn't really have the details of the technical aspects of the show till well till later. So like it would say, you know, uh, Riker says a line. And I think on the script, it says something like techno jargon or techno babble that hadn't been written yet. Like, so there are scientific advisors on the show that read the scripts apparently, and then go, Oh yeah, this is how it works. You know what I mean? They just fill in the blank. It's just like Mad Libs with with (laughs) scientific sounding words. Yeah, it sounds like so. Late, you know, I think Michael Okuda and um, and Denise Okuda, I think, is his wife's name. uh, They were more prominent in later seasons. I don't know their how their involvement went in this first season, but uh, Michael Okuda is responsible for a lot of the uh, technical layout of the of the start. You know, the stuff you never even see on screen. There was a really cool book that he published called the Star Trek The Next Generation, The Technical Manual, which, of course, I purchased. <laughs> oh, is that is that how you know exactly where 10 Forward is? Located? Oh, yeah, all the things. I, yeah. I'm very intimate. In my, uh, if to use a reference from another show, my mind palace has a very detailed schematic or representation of, the, of all the enterprises. <laughs> So anytime you want, you can close your eyes and, and walk the halls of... Yeah, walk the halls, I know how to get to... The Enterprise D, or do you have all the Enterprises in there? My, my most prominent uh, and solidified visualization would be of the Enterprise A, which is my favorite. Oh. I'm very intimate with the... Uh, and, and, and in particular, the, the bridge I always pop in there is the Star Trek VI bridge, so... That's like my favorite. That's the bomb.com bridge as far as I'm concerned. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I like Sulu's. What Sulu ship? Is it the Excelsior? Excelsior, yeah. Uh, Sulu's bridge in that movie is pretty cool too. No, there's a lot of great bridges. Uh, <laughs> but the Enterprise D is a close second just because I spent so much time with the ship as a kid, you know, like watching Star Trek. Next generation as it aired, and then just anytime there was a re- this is my whole free time as a child uh, into my teenage years was uh, 
okay, what's on TV? Oh, look, it's Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> you know, so there are some episodes that I've seen many, many times. And so, yeah, Enterprise D would be a good close second. And, yeah, just, yeah, that's what's going on in my, uh, my little brain there. There's a detailed map of, uh, <laughs> of the Enterprise. If you ever want to uh, come into my mind, Goldie Scott, and share an experience on the Enterprise... <laughs> I would love to sometime, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to get some coaching from a Beta Z, uh, Beta Zoidian or Beta Zoid person to teach me. Um, so everyone, at one point, everyone's acting drunk, and in, in full effect, this uh, assistant engineer pulls out all the command sh- chips that are isolinear chips. And so we're faced with this dilemma. The Enterprise is sitting a sitting duck, there's stellar matter heading for it, at, you know, and uh, and we don't know what to do. And so this, the solve is two twofold. The first solve is, well, Commander Data could easily put all the isolinear. You know, the chief engineer says, it's going to take me probably two to three hours to put these chips back in their proper places. And that's true. Like, a human yeah. is going to have to look at this thing and go, holy shit, where does this piece go? There's like 900 of them on the floor, you know? And it's like a puzzle. It's like you're gonna, you need time. They don't have this time. So wonderfully, well, as Riker, Riker specifically tells them, you know, he Riker is able to look at the view screen and see this this blob coming at them, and he is able to know right away that they have eight or nine minutes. Very specific about the amount of time they. I'm not sure how he knows that, but he knows it, and he's he's certain it's eight or nine minutes they have. <laughs> This is so fascinating because it's the second time Riker does this just by looking at the the view screen and and an encounter at Farpoint he manually docks the star drive to the saucer section using a view screen. <laughs> no, no other. Well, he's Commander Riker. I mean, how do you think he became commander? <laughs> um, I wish I could just look at a view screen and know things like that. Things like that. It would be really wonderful. But you're right. And um, so the first solution is Commander Data, of course. He can just fucking, pardon my French, just... And then it's really beautifully done, the scene, actually, because they they sped it up, I think, just right. Yeah, the special effects were good. Yeah, it looked real. Like, it didn't look like he was sped up. So it was done really well. But Data then expresses, if only we had one more minute... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if only one more minute, and that's if when only it was nine or ten minutes instead of eight or nine, <laughs> eight, or, eight or nine minutes. Um, so Wesley comes to the rescue, and uh, the Enterprise is able to warp safely out of danger a millisecond also, before the blob would have hit them. Yeah, and also beautifully, um, Doctor Crusher is a is able to realizes that the version of this contagion that the Enterprise D is uh, experiencing is just slightly different from the one that the 1701 experienced. And there's a really kind of cute scene in medical when she's about to administer the updated uh, inoculation to Geordi where Picard says something to the effect of like, um, you know, isn't it, weird how fate has brought two enterprises across many decades to a similar scenario. And I kind of like that. I was like, that's a really cool philosophical and like kind of 
tie in, you know, and, and it get it to, for me, it did hit the right notes, um, the way it was acted and everything. And it kind of just like gave you this idea that yes, these people are the, you know, the torchbearers at the moment and I'm willing to follow you guys. You know, at t- second episodes are always interesting, I think in series, because it's like where you really realize, is this a show I'm going to want to watch, you know, like, you know, am I going to watch episode three? And I think that, that that for a fan, for people who watched the original series and loved Star Trek at the time, you know, not someone necessarily new to it, but for a fan, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I dig what you're saying here uh, and I'm willing to go on, go along for the ride. So also at the last moment, this cure is found and uh, Picard and Crusher are the second and third to be inoculated and then Picard takes a hypo spray and goes and he inoculates everyone in engineering. And, you know, ironically, uh, Wesley is not inoculated and he's such a boy genius that he's able to uh, do all these things. That was really weird. That was like waited an unnecessarily long time to inoculate Wesley. I, I found something disturbing watching it. So when I first watched the show, I didn't know what it was like to get drunk. I mean, I was a nine-year-old kid, never had a beer, never had any alcohol. I came to drinking really late in life. Like 24 was my first beer at the age of 24. Yeah, interesting side tidbit here. And you're um, only 25 now, so you don't what's know. That? <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I'm 38. 38, everyone. But, you know, it's the future. We live to... well into our hundreds right so i'm still a spring chicken but having experienced drinking watching this show now as as someone who has been intoxicated i thought that uh wesley's performance was a little strangely real and i wonder if he method acted this and got drunk for it as someone who is currently intoxicated (laughs) experience being intoxicated um (laughs) I, that would be amazing. I don't know if they would, would, do you think that kind of thing would go on there? I feel like it was a very like. Will Wheaton, if you ever see this, if this ever gets to you, Will Wheaton, somehow, we're very curious to know if you method acted through episode three. And if. Like like maybe if it was Corey Feldman, I might, or even Corey Haim, possibly. (laughs) But. Um, I, I felt like Will Wheaton was such a goody-goody, wasn't he? What, he I don't know that he, you know, I think that we ascribe um, character traits to the real personage, right? But we no, know... He just wasn't known for being, you know, certain of those child actors in that crowd were known for being drug addicts and things like that that came out later in life. Um, I don't think anything like that's ever come out about him. I think he was pretty clean-cut uh, for that's most of not- that's fine. I agree with you 100%. But I, if I were a child, like not a child actor necessarily, but how old was he actually when you played the part? Like probably like 17 or 18, right? We have I no, I think he was younger than that. I think he was younger than that. Let's find out. This will, this, will, this will help yeah. us with our speculation here. So I think he was about the same age as the character. I'm going to guess that he was 15 at the time this was filmed. Let's see. That is my final answer, Regis. So he's 43 today. He was born in 72. So he's a little older than we are. So if he was born in 72, then in 87, he was 15. 
So you were right. So he may not have then yeah, regulations would not permit him to method act. No. That scene. But it's it is pretty good. I have to say he's very convincing. And I think the sweat and then the manicness, like just the manicness of him, I feel like a 15-year-old would act that way. If uh, I thought that was great. So good job. Well, he was probably, you know, I'm sure he had been around it at the very least. Oh, yeah. I know. We can all. Corey Feldman or Corey Haim. (laughs) I, I would say that if I were filming this episode again, let's say the new, the new series decides to do, let's say they do, hey, let's do a naked episode. The naked again. What's that? Naked again. I would incur I would say that everyone should definitely get really drunk if they can because I would love to see it like acted. That's an interesting concept. We should maybe do a drunk oh that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> we're drinking while while doing the show, so but yeah, but for me, I mean I think the one the one thing that stands out that I remembered most from my childhood viewing and that still stands out to me as the most important part of this show is, you know, Data having sex. And he talks about the fact that he's been programmed in a wide range of techniques and he is fully functional. I mean, fully. so we're to believe that Dr. Soong programmed him to to actually have intercourse with people or uh, he doesn't ever display sexual urges at any point that I remember. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I do think Dr. Soon, having met Dr. Soon later on, is the kind of guy who would, who would program an algorithm or a, a subroutine, if you will. Yeah, um, he did look a little pervy. He was, he was, I mean, you know, I mean, he's Dr. Soon. I met, if he, he modeled data after himself. And so you can imagine like uh, that, um, Data actually looks like Dr. Soon would have at whatever age Data is. So, like, I know Data's only, like, seven years old or ten years old, technically, right? But he modeled him, he's modeled after Dr. Soon at that age. So he's not a bad-looking guy. I imagine he, you know, he had quite a few interesting uh, experiences. And, and when you meet Dr. Soon, you do get the impression that he is a dirty old man. Oh, yeah, no doubt. But his, you know, also his dream was for Data to someday achieve humanity. Being so human. I guess it does make sense that he would include that part of it in there. Right, because that's a big part of what we are. Humans are very sexual creatures. And fully functional. And fu- we are hopefully... We fully fully functional. Functional. I, let everybody know. I think philosophically it's very interesting because um, Tasha, so she she kind of like you know, so Picard orders Data to go down and take Tasha to sickbay. Because when he calls... Oh, well, actually, this is a really funny scene. So so Data starts to recount a limerick he heard on on, on the <laughs> ship. And he says, Sir, I heard this, uh, this limerick, and it goes, There was a young lady from Venus whose body was shaped like a... And before he's able to finish the limerick, which we all know how it's going to end... Picard says, security to bridge, bro. <laughs> like, it just, that's like too far for Picard. He's like, he's like he can't, you know, he's like, this is unbelievable what's happening. And then in that scene, uh, <laughs> he just has no place on the bridge of a starship. It's true. And in that, so in that scene, uh, which is delightful, 
uh, Picard calls for security, and then Tasha answers, and he's, she's like, hey, Jean-Luc, I'm a little busy right now. And she's got this very, like, flirty, sexy voice going on. Yeah, who do you think she was with in there? I don't know. I think she was just... I, here's... Even though they were intoxicated, um, they don't specifically tell you what they're intoxicated with, but I can't help, though I'm not... I don't have personal experience with ecstasy. I've been around people... I can't help but say that, like, everyone seemed like they were on, they were, what is it called? Rolling balls, right? Like, they were, or something like that. I don't, I don't have a lot of, or really any experience with ecstasy either, but, uh. But that's yeah. what ecstasy, yeah. like, in my opinion, like, I feel like that's the intoxication level that everyone's at here. Because you feel this, like, apparently this, like, intense body high or body awareness and body experience and so people describe being an XC. It used to be used as a as a method to help couples. It was a couple therapy drug originally. Psychiatrists or psychologists were using it. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's interesting. So it makes a lot of sense because it apparently a side effect of XC is like heightened sensuality. And that's the overall kind of like I think symptom. Like everyone just was so turned on and like uninhibited and sexual and sensual in this episode. So, so, but it's also interesting too, given Tasha. You know, have we learned at this point that that Tasha like basically grew up in like a Romulan prison camp where she was repeatedly raped and things like that? And, I don't recall if it was Romulan. I get the impression that she managed to escape the rape gangs because in in Encounter. Far point. She does mention she's like I figured out a way to not to like escape the rape gangs. But where she lived, there was a lot of anxiety because apparently there were rape gangs. She was on a very hostile and uh, and disturbed planet. That's where it's she. It's interesting up. that you know I know that's a big part of her backstory and that she's really the most like sexualized character in this episode and that outfit that she's wearing is amazing um, and her hair with the little. Superman curl. I'm not sure what that's all about, but I in like general, it. Tasha, hang on a second. I just noticed something. Can you say something for a second? Say something for a second. Is that the queen knighting Sir Patrick Stewart hanging on your wall? Yeah. Oh, indeed <laughs> it is. Yes, that is. That's amazing. <laughs> Elizabeth II. I am impressed. That is very cool. Thanks for including that on our show here. Oh, of course. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I can't wait to see that in, in person when I visit you. <laughs> Someday, get over, get over here to Bajor, man. We got it going on right next to the wormhole. There's lots of uh, fun stuff. I'll take you to Quark's bar. Wait, was the wormhole around in your occupation? Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, this is terrible. <laughs> I'll take you to some interrogations. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to Tasha. We'll do something fun. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I, I look forward to the day when uh, when uh, when we can come to an agreement about Bajor because I don't think I can visit you till you give Bajor some uh, relief from their... They feel like they're occupied right now. Well, listen, it's not our fault. <laughs> so... So going back to Tasha for a moment, I think it kind of, um, I think that overall she does display very little sexuality and she's almost very like, you know, she is the chief of security. 
She's very tough. She's very poised. One thing about her is she's hot-headed, for sure. You know, she's hot-headed, brash. Um, and but that's you know that that is something that I think is is an advantage. But this is the first time we see an intimate part of her, and I think it's because where she grew up that she doesn't like express that. Whereas Deanna Troy is sensual, just all the all the time. There is a quality to her that where she's very free and liberal, and it's not disturbing or weird. It it does. I mean, later it's not. But well, I mean, she's disturbing and weird in a different way. But yes, she's also sensual. So she's got a you know right. So here you know. is that. I think that's the part of the intoxication that's interesting because this is out of character for her, and we see this side of her, and it's like, why wouldn't she want intimacy? And I think it's so beautiful that she and Data share this moment, but I think it's so tragic that when she's sober again, when she's cured, she says to Data, Data, that never happened. It's I can relate. <laughs> we all can relate. <laughs> <laughs> But Data doesn't have any emotions at this point, so he's, you know. Yeah, but when that emotion chip activates, he remembers a joke from season one, so he probably goes into his quarters and cries for no reason then, <laughs> because he remembers this, like, happening. No, but it is also, it's, it's, I like, I love how Data doesn't even really put up a fight. You, you know, you would kind of expect him to be like, oh, hold on, what are you doing here? But He's game, like, from the minute he walks in the door. She's like, are you fully functional? He's like, why, yes. You know, and... And, and that's a wonderful uh, example of how a character without emotions would respond to a situation like that. I mean, I think it is kind of interesting how Data does have this, like, kind of, like, different way of responding to things than, than humans with emotions would. And I love that they explore... Uh, some of these aspects, uh, but it's nice to also know that Data is, you know, there are a lot of fangirls and, and fanboys out there were probably very pleased to, at the idea that now they can have fantasies about Data. You know, this is before the age of slash, slash fiction and like all these things. And so I remember uh, as a teenager going, huh. <laughs> so if you were in this scenario, you know, since you brought this up, if you're yep. if you're in the enterprise in this scenario and you get hit with this virus, who's who's the person you're going after? Oh, that's a great question. You have to answer this too. Um, I honestly would make the same choice as Tasha because I can just Data would be the perfect lover. He'd just do whatever you want. He would just want to please you. That would be his objective. He's just like, okay, he has no real desire for sexual interaction. He's just kind of like, all right, well, I'm fully functional and I'm programmed in multiple techniques. <laughs> so let's go on this ride. <laughs> so Data would be my pick. What about you? Yeah. I think I'm going to go with Tasha Yar. Nice. Yeah, I mean, just that outfit is incredible. That went, When I said earlier in the show, this is a great uh, bringing it full circle kind of thing. Um, my one memory of this show from childhood was that image was, you know, her in that outfit with the slicked back hair and, um, just, uh, a defining moment of, of my nine-year-old life. And, and it shows, uh, the, the entire cast, I think of the, of this show is just very naturally attractive and different. There's a diverse kind of attract, you know, you have Captain Picard who's very attractive, and it shows you that like uh, these these 
actors at the time uh, were both physically and mentally attractive. And I think I like that about the episode too, is that it shows you that attractiveness doesn't necessarily come from physical looks or anything like that, but that you can, you can, you can be, you can express your sensuality and like be sensual in a way that suits who you are. And I love that about this episode. And I think I agree with you though. Um, though Starfleet boy himself is homosexual, I can appreciate the beauty of women. And I have to say that the, the outfit she's wearing, the costume is stunning. Like it just shows it's not very racy by today's standards. I mean, like we've seen worse on the Hollywood red carpet, you know, like, but you know, everything, any sexualized anatomy is covered up, but the reveal of her long torso. Oh yeah. And the shape, it's so beautiful. I thought, you know, and I thought that was, I could see like, young Scott <laughs> being extremely uh, intrigued by that. <laughs> yeah. Even as a young Cardassian, I could appreciate human beauty. Do you think society will always desire and, and want have a place for sexuality in our entertainment? Oh, of course. I mean, it goes, do you, do you watch Rome on HBO? Wait, what's that? Did you, uh, what's going on over there? Oh, I live in downtown, I live in downtown, uh, well, in our universe, in our, like, pretend here, we're in downtown San Francisco, right? Because oh, in pretend, we're, we're back in pretend world? Starfleet, that's where Starfleet headquarters is, but in reality, I live in downtown Seattle, and, you know, it's an exciting place. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> I just was worried that there was some sort of Romulan attack underway, or... <laughs> no, uh, I have a... You know, I have a direct line to Starfleet Command, and you know, being an admiral, if if I'm needed, uh, I'd probably be instantly transported out of here to a command room. Excellent. Where, you know, where you know that would be crazy. <laughs> but it wouldn't be you. Well, this will be a long discussion for another time about <laughs> whether you know teleportation actually is you that comes out on the other end. <laughs> Ooh, very nice. Yeah. A very good discussion. Um, so uh, interestingly enough, the wrap of the episode, the moral, if you will, was very interesting to me. So everyone's cured and, uh, you know, we sit down on the bridge after this really awkward and weird experience and Captain Picard makes a statement to Riker and Troy, which they don't take, their expressions show an interesting, uh, you know, way of how they took it. But uh, he says something along the lines of, well, I do believe we can end up a fine crew if we avoid temptation. (laughs) (laughs) And he kind of lays the law down. He's like, all right, everyone, I understand there was this weird virus, but this is my ship. (laughs) Well, do you feel like also it's kind of like, because, you know, he he doesn't get with Dr. Crusher till like the movies. Right. So it's, Oh, it's so, uh, just it, what happens is at the end of the series, Dr. Crusher and they always have this tension. They don't ever really kind of yeah. like, get together. So, so but, I guess, but in all good things, which is the end of the series, um, it's known that Dr. Crusher and Picard in this weird kind of timeline, it's like an alternate timeline, if you will, Dr. Crusher and Captain Picard do get married, but then unfortunately, tragically, they get divorced as well. 
That's right, and she's captain of, of some ship, right? Of the Pasteur. Yeah. Yeah, which I think... I guess my question is, though, as far as, you know, Picard's final line about avoiding temptation and kind of giving a warning to the crew, is it kind of... I look at it as a case of, you know, he realizes that he's not going to get laid, so he'll be damned if everyone else is getting laid and he's the only one who's not. He knows, you know, he can't get with Beverly at that point. I, I'm going to do Picard on this one and go a different direction than you because he's certainly capable of it. I mean, already, let's just talk about Picard for a second here. We have the whole crusher romance, un, unrequited romance, right? But then there's the episode that you really love with Commander Maddox where Data, you remember Data's uh, humanity? Oh, of the man? Yeah, and so the judge in that episode, there's something going on there. Oh, Yeah. He's yeah, like, really Admiral later too, in in uh, other episodes, isn't she? Come yeah. back, like, right? And then there's Vosh. Vosh, you know they've done it. <laughs> is Vosh? Wait, is that Famke Jansen? I don't remember. Is that Famke Jansen? Because well, there's, there's the Famke Jansen episode where sort of he he falls in love with her, she falls in love with him. There's that romance too. I am gonna be so embarrassed if I didn't know that. Vosh is uh, Famke Johnson, so pro- apologies to you. No, I don't know either. I don't know. It's... Let's find out who, who plays. Let's see, Famke Johnson, Star Trek. Let's see here. I think there's oh. all... Oh, I know that episode. But yes, there's that episode. And then, so no, Vosh, let me look her up and let's give credit to the actors. Isn't there a Risa episode too, where he goes on vacation to Risa and has a little fling with somebody? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So Vash is an archaeologist. She's a human archaeologist, remember? And she's like, Q kind of introduces them, I think. And he must be doing this to, to distract uh, Picard from his, uh, his mission. But Picard genuinely falls in love with her. And that's the weird episode. It must be the Risa episode because, or the Rigel episode, because Picard's wearing this like really revealing uh, bathing suit. Yes! Oh, and, that's it. Oh, I... I don't know when that episode is, but I want to be on that episode with you to discuss it. Yeah, and so the, the actress who plays Vosh, great character, her name is Jennifer Hetrick. So, yeah, good. Can't wait to get to that. Well, yeah. I'm just trying to make it a point that we talk about all the romantic sexual episodes together. We'll, we'll try our best. Girls. All right, I like that. I will be your, sex, your romance and sex correspondent with all my vast history and experience in my life. But to wrap up that point about Picard, I think what he's saying is that, like, to him, there's a degree of professionalism involved with being a Starfleet officer, and he doesn't want the crew to be tempted to be too familiar. And he's kind of laying down the law in that statement. And he's, it's ironic. It's not ironic, sorry. It's interesting who he's saying it to. He's saying it to his first officer and to Counselor Troy. So he's almost kind of discouraging them does he know that they have a past relationship at that point? He's aware of it, and he's almost kind of like saying, hey, guys, like, I don't want this ship to be about relationships, like intimate relationships. I want this ship to be about everyone having a professional relationship, and we're on a mission, you know? And that's how I interpreted that. And I think, like, you know, you can relate a, the command structure of a starship to an enterprise, if you will, such as a business or whatever. And that is something that, you know... In general, it's found that uh, businesses that operate with um, too many intimate relationships between bosses and 
you know, people in charge and, and their subordinates uh, do suffer. At least it's a harder business to run than one. I believe the place where you and I work together, there were rules against that, weren't there? Yes. Apple is much like Starfleet, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Without the cool spaceships. Without the cool spaceships. Although it did feel, I often did uh, go into my mind palace and pretend that I was on the bridge of the Enterprise when I was commanding uh, the red zone, if you will. And you fantasized that Picard was giving you orders? <laughs> no, I, I, think I, rather, I think I rather fantasized that I was Picard giving the orders. <laughs> but still, whatever, whatever floats our individual boats, I suppose. Is there anything else we want to talk about this episode, or do you think, uh, do you think we're good on, on episode two? Um, we covered pretty much uh, all the nonsense on my notepad here. <laughs> I thought this was another great discussion. I really had a lot of fun, and uh, I look forward to uh, more with you, Goldie Scott, and, uh, and thank you. Thank you, SB. Tear <laughs> off, we're out. Signing off.